Previously on Funny Science Fiction. And now I'm always a little bit confused when I hear Tim talk in an American accent. It's like, wait a minute, you're like, British. Oh, no, you. you're not actually Colin. That's right. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I'm not British. <laughs> well, I could, buddy. Welcome to the Funny Science Fiction Podcast. The podcast where your chances of surviving an away mission actually improve when you're wearing a red shirt. Yeah. All right, so today our guest is Pat Jankowitz. Welcome to the show, Pat. Welcome, Pat. Hey, thank you. Welcome, Funny science, science fishing podcast. I'm honored to be here, and I'm even honored to hear your home base is in Michigan. Yeah, that's right. So we're excited to have Pat on our show today. Not only is he from our mitten state of Michigan, but he's also been in and around Star Wars and Star Trek both for many, many years. But Pat is also an author of several books, and we're going to talk to him about that, that and those compa those uh, companion books as well. So Ooh, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. So Pat, you've got a pretty unique perspective on things that many sci-fi fans don't get to have. You've been in front of the camera. Now we think about Star Trek, K-Pax. You've got some other movies and shows coming out. But also, you've been behind the pen, so to speak, writing companion novels for Incredible Hulk, Jaws, Buck Rogers, as well as uh, uh, magazine articles and on online sites as well. So do you, have, do you have a preference as whether to be an actor or a writer? And how does that affect your, your being an actor? How does that affect or influence your writing ability? Well, it's weird because when you when you go out for something like like I had two Super Bowl commercials this year uh, uh, for Tide and for Bud Light, you right. know, same commercials with Charlie Day. I think the cool thing is the the acting stuff. Your agent will send you out. You'll go on a couple auditions. You'll get something, and it's not you. I mean, when you when you write a book or or you write an article, that's solely you generated. That's you asking all the questions you want answered. And one of the things, you know, running for Star Wars Insider and Star Trek Monthly and all these other magazines, you when you get the people, you know, when you're an actor, you don't meet with the top dog unless you've gone all the way through the chain and the edition. Right. But when you're when you're a journalist or a writer, you're sitting down with Gary Kurtz and Gary Kurtz is answering your questions, you know, like like right. I did Gary Kurtz's last interview. And I mean, to me, Covering the franchise, I just ask stuff I've always wanted to know. Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and I've been lucky enough with like Star Trek and Star Wars, I've talked to some of the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. I mean, uh, um, I talked to, uh, I have an interview that's just amazing. There's a guy who's in the original Star Wars, but he kept screwing up his lines. <laughs> he was redubbed. And Lucas was so angry at this British actor, he gave the guy, the American guy in Burbank, who redubbed him, credit on the movie. <laughs> and so that'll be, that'll, that'll, I mean, that is one of my favorite interviews because everyone is used to the, the confident Carrie Fisher or the Mark Hamill interviews where and I just did this and I got the part. The exact opposite is even more interesting. This guy who was in James Bond and all this other stuff, this poor British guy, he's a kid when he does Star Wars, and he's breaking into a sweat, and Lucas is getting more and more angry at him. It's the <laughs> flip side of your Star Wars story. It's, it's, to me, it's the best hard luck story I've ever heard about Star Trek, you know? Yeah, right. That's cool. 
All right. So now we talked about Buck Rogers real, real briefly. Now. So speaking of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, now I understand there's some pretty big and exciting news coming out, something that you're directly involved with. So can you tell our audience what's happening and what your level of involvement with Buck Rogers was? Yeah, I, I did my book, uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, a TV companion. And as of tomorrow, tomorrow Tuesday, at the time of this interview, uh, uh, November 24th, the Kino Lorber and Universal are putting out the first Buck Rogers Blu-ray. Oh, nice. And oh, cool. No, no, I, I was surprised too. But they called, they contacted me earlier this year, and I did 11 episodes of, uh, and I do commentary on 11 episodes. Wow, that's awesome. Stories. I know, isn't that weird? I mean, Great. you're someone, you know. I saw your book it, on I, Amazon, so that, that's exciting. Thank you very much. It, it, it's you're telling all these weird behind the scenes stories, but also I, I really, unlike the book, because this is a visual medium, it's me talking. I'm able to point out all the recycled Battlestar Galactica special effects shots. Right. And put it down. <laughs> That's awesome. And, That's and cool. you guys, whenever Buck enters the space, yeah, whenever he enters the space bar on the, on the show, which I pointed out on the Blu-ray, you will see about a dozen Battlestar Galactica aliens with their costumes thrown on a bunch of extras. Right. <laughs> That's great. That's, That's great. Awesome. All right. So uh, to kind of go along with that thought, how, what other ways does your companion book help with people watch watching the Buck Rogers show? Kind of help tell us how does that, how do those two work together? You're able to tell, you're able to, to me, you're telling all the stories because the, the show is long the show is long gone, but you're exhuming it. You're exhuming the show for a brand new audience or for the classic audience. I don't, in Michigan, do you guys get MeTV? Yes. Yes. Okay. MeTV has revived Buck Rogers. To me, that's exciting. This is the first time since it was on the sci-fi channel that Buck is again showing to a, a national audience. So you know, on one, once a week, they kids can turn in like their parents did and watch Buck Rogers, you know? And to me, the best stories about Buck Rogers were behind the scenes. I mean, the, the, I done, I, I, I done a, I was writing for a magazine that's gone now called Starlog, you know, um, Starlog was kind of a, a home away from home for me in college on, it was always a side hustle for me, whatever I was working on. I would always be doing Starlog and Fangoria articles on the side, you know? And, and to me, when you talk to someone whose show is gone, you have two ways of going about it. You can do a stuff and mountain job, as I call them, Nothing. where you, 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 you talk about the favorite episodes, blah, blah, blah. Right. Or you can go deeper and do, you do that, but you go deeper. You want to know about the human element. You want to know what happened there. Right. And on Buck Rogers, it was one of the shows. The, I, I did an interview with Aaron Gray. Aaron oh, Gray yeah, talking yeah. about Buck. Yeah, it was a, the, the first time she talked about Buck since the series. And yeah, a lot of times they're ambivalent about it, but I caught her, I caught her in a reflective mood. Right. And she set the room on fire, you guys. She gave me the best interview. I mean, that's uh, cool. The, you know, and, and you guys, when you get that sort of interview, when, when you're that sort of honesty, you're like, holy cow, you know, I never knew this, I never knew that. And I mean, 
she really opened up when when Gil Gerard was making he was the star of the show and he was making top dollar. She was a universal contract actress, so she had to work all the same hours he did with a baby at home. Oh, but wow. she had to do it for a flat six hundred a week. She's staying till three in the morning and has to be back at seven. Oh, you know? Man. Oh wow. That's rough. Yeah, I mean, because you are a contract actress, you don't get the nine-hour turnaround, you know, if you are a star on the show. So she's a star on the show in name only, but she's basically a wage slave at the Universal Studios program. It's amazing. Man, yeah. That's great. Well, cool. Yeah, so that, that's kind of cool that you have those kind of backstories going into it. And I always think <coughs> it's better when you get the, the uh, instead of the stale, re rehashed information, what you call the stuff in Mount, uh, versus the personalized information now, that's always going to draw more people in so that's cool. cool well because you know you want to know i mean again you just made a reference to yarnick and the savage curtain that blows my mind <laughs> you know <laughs> you know to me a, a mention of yarnick that 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 that's you're the chosen tribe when i hear stuff like that <laughs> Well, you know, we try we try and mix it up a little bit and, and uh, hit all over the Star Trek universe when we do our intros. So yeah, we have fun with it. All right, so yeah. let's now for something completely different. Uh, in oh. the words of Monty Python, yes. <laughs> and now for something completely different, uh, and not even they close to sci-fi related. Uh, so Pat, I noticed that you were in a music video of one of my favorite bands and actually one of their favorite songs or my favorite songs that they did. I'm, of course, talking about the music video for Alice in Chains, the song Again. Great song. Wow. Interesting okay, we video. shot that on a Super Bowl Sunday in the bowels of the old Herald Examiner building. Herald Examiner was a Hearthstone newspaper, and it's one of the most beautiful Art Deco buildings in Los Angeles. It's also where they shot both of Chevy Chase's stretch movies. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. In, I, in fact, it, was a, it was a two-day you know, it was. I came, I'm so pleased you liked Allison Chains. I loved Jerry Cantrell. Yeah, Jerry Cantrell. They're from Seattle, and right? So half my half my family. My dad is this. Uh, my my dad, like my brothers and sister and I, are all straight up Detroiters. Uh -huh. My mom was from Seattle, and my sister lives there now with her her wonderful wife and her her wonderful husband and kids. Yeah, my aunts and my my aunt and uncle and live out there and everything. So I knew Seattle really well. So Jerry Cantrell and I talked. Now, in fact, you know what? If you know that, that I'm the zombie teacher in the video. Yes. You know, I'm the one who's running on the board. I'm right. making yes. them all copy it. Yeah. You know, and uh, and the funny thing is, they liked my printing. They one of them saw me writing, and and they they saw me writing an article. I I, I had an article. Okay. He, he Jerry Cantrell and the director looked over my shoulder and they liked my writing and they go. Can you write on a blackboard for us? I go, sure. I was working as an English teacher, you know, and right? so I, I wound up. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you guys. You know, yes, yes. They wheeled in a blackboard and they kept, and the director kept going, you are so good running in the blackboard. I'm like, I don't use chalk. We use whiteboard, whiteboard and Sharpies, but you know, that's a work. <laughs> they should have given you a bigger blackboard. You're bending down yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna tell you something kind of cool. You know the tall zombie with me? Uh, there, there's yeah. me and the 
the tall zombie with me, he's not as tall as I am, but that's Harry Boycott. He was the highest paid NBA player and the first Jewish oh. NBA star of all time. Oh, neat. You know? Okay. Awesome. And Jer- Jerry Cantrell was terrific. Uh, Lane Staley was on the cover of Rolling Stone when we shot that. And I'm going to tell you, we were, we were shooting, we were shooting in the, as I said, in the bowels of the Herald Examiner on Super Bowl Sunday. And unlike Michigan, where Super Bowl Sunday is one of the coldest days of the yeah. year. <laughs> Super Bowl, yeah, in the Super Bowl Sunday, when we were making this, and, and they brought in the torches and everything, Super Bowl Sunday, you guys, was like 95 degrees. Oh, man. And so every time you don't see the zombies or Jerry Cantrell and the rest of us, we were tearing off our shirts and, and hurling them in a corner, oh, you man. know, and they were, you know, not in front of the kids, obviously, you know, the, the, right, you know, right. the kid monks. So the rest of us were sweating, waiting for the, I don't know how the kid monks weren't passing out when they walked in in the hoods and all that, but boy, the rest of us were, so, but the only guy who wasn't, you know, you mentioned this is a, a slightly serious moment. Lane Staley, the lead singer, yeah. was wearing a complete leather outfit, head to toe, except for, and gloves. I'm going to tell gloves you, and the, all. The, the, yeah, the, the, he wasn't sweating at all, not a drop. <laughs> the rumor on the set, I'm, I'm going to mention this, the rumor on the set, I won't tell you who was talking about it, it wasn't Jerry, it wasn't the manager, and it wasn't the director, but the rumor on the set, somebody, one of, one of the scuttlebutt was, He'd shot, he, 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 you know, because he, he wasn't well known for his addictions. He supposedly was covered all in leather all the way up to the neck, supposedly because he now had track marks on his neck, is what the rumor on the set was. Yeah. And the rumor on the set was he was wearing leather gloves because somebody who, who seemed to be a musician of knowing was saying it looked like he was, it was somebody on the crew mentioned it looked like he was injecting his fingers. So they're going to leave it. Since he wasn't sweating and the rest of us were pouring with sweat i don't know how he didn't have a, a drop of sweat on him in 95 degrees wow. but that was the rumor and they kept him in the, the leather outfit you know yeah that was one of the things actually we t- we uh, as a group we were talking about uh as we watched your video or their video that you were in um yeah. but, but that, yeah, that was <laughs> yeah no you were not singing uh but no <laughs> but i have i have one more question for you about that video okay sure how uncomfortable was that white suit? Because it looks like it only fit you in the shoulders and maybe the waist. Well, see, when you do a big guy call on a commercial or a video, they love to put you in smaller clothing so it looks like you're breaking out of it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was itchy and it was 95 degrees. So literally, anytime I'm not on screen and it's in a heap, the, the whole top, the, 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 the whole suit is in a heap in the corner. You know what I mean? I mean, right, right. It was. I can't tell you guys. Two days of that. It was so hot. It was so itchy. You know. And, and, hey, you know, I had a question about you know uh, being on stage, and you know, you've been in uh, lots of different stage situations recently. There's this big hubbub about Admiral Blue Jeans. It's the name they gave the guy on the newest, uh, one of the latest. Uh, oh yeah. Episodes. Well, first of all, the Mandalorian guy. First of all, that episode was directed by Carl Weathers. That episode is rock and roll. Yeah. I don't care. You know, I don't care. I never noticed Admiral Blue Jeans. I didn't either. <laughs> I was watching. Oh, I don't. I'm not into picking out stuff in the back. Well, by the way, Michiganders, 
as Michiganders, we have to support Carl Weathers because he was one of the most important fake Michiganders of all. He's Action Jackson. That's right. There you go. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. You're the only budget shot in the Detroit, not starring Eddie Murphy. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I was wondering because how, you know, how does stuff like that get past editing? I wonder is is it and how hard is it when you're on a set like that to keep everybody in their place without? See, that's a, I've been on the set of Star Trek and stuff, and it's so regimented. To me. To me, the, the, the frenetic moment where you get a crew guy on camera, my, my, friend, my friend is the director, and we were just talking about that last night because that episode is so rock and roll, you know. That's and a great episode. It's an amazing episode. I hope they let Carl Weathers direct more episodes. You know, I love, I love yeah. that Favreau is running them all. I've interviewed Favreau about four times. And this, it's so rare. I mean, you guys are, are cover sci-fi. Okay. Yeah. It's so rare when the right guy gets the right project, isn't it? Yes. Especially when, when the Star Wars sequels, in the, 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 the Star Wars theatricals are so mediocre. And this is so, the Mandalorian is exactly what everyone wanted. You wanted Dave Filoni, you wanted George Lucas. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just to me, it's exactly what you want, you know? Yeah, it's absolutely. A great, it's a great film, a great uh, series. I'm really enjoying it. Where we are as a family, you know. I had to ask another question. You've been, you've had uh, a lot of uh, interest in sci-fi, of course, and there's so many different cool races, and you've got to actually play a couple on uh, on Star Trek. If you were forced uh, into a science fiction universe, let's say uh, aliens came and said, "Okay, you can pick any science fiction universe. We're going to make it all real." You couldn't be a human, but you could be any alien race. Who? What alien race would you choose, and why? Uh, th this is kind of a cheat, but as a kid, I identified with R two D two. You yeah. know, I mean R two D two. is not a, my, my brother. <laughs> just put my brother Donald just put out R two D two is not an alien. He's a robot, but you know R two D two. Yeah, he was the guy I most identified with. There, there's a scene. There's a scene in the original Star Wars where uh, R2-D2 is arguing with basically his brother, C-3PO. Right. And when he turns around, R2, C-3PO kicks him in the butt. And my older brother used to do that to me as a kid that was driving me to play. Yeah. And when I, saw, when I saw Star Wars as a kid, that was the scene that I really identified with. R to me, you can make the argument R2-D2 goes through every single step of the hero's journey that Luke Skywalker does. Definitely. He does every single thing. He's there. In fact, you could argue he's the most, you'll meet your, you'll meet your hero on page one. R2-D2 is there on page one. Yeah. I felt movies were more about R2, the, the, those three movies, especially the first two, it's R2-D2's story, you know? Yeah, you definitely. Think, you think R2 will ever meet a female R2? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't think he's wired like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think he's. To me, he's more of a. I I didn't like in the I didn't like in the later Star Wars movies where they they had uh, Padme. I think calls him Sir R two D two in one of the movies. It's like no, 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 no. That's like honoring your toaster. You know, he's he's like a, a cross between a dog and a toaster. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but that is the character I most identified with because all through this, all through Star Wars. They all underestimate R2-D2. He gets them out of the trash compactor and everything else. R2-D2, I would argue, is as important as Luke in the original film. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. 
And he's also a great source of the humor, his relationship with C-3PO. And then you know what? And with the Wookiee, remember, you know, when, he, when he's, in the, the, he's in the chess team with the C-3PO and Chewbacca, remember? Yeah. Falls over. Didn't the Jawa shoot him or something? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. One of the the amazing things is Kenny Baker. I mean, uh, I I had the privilege of interviewing Kenny Baker a couple times in person. Little. He's a little person. Yeah. 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 Who played R two D two? And he told me some of the greatest stories I've heard about Star Wars came from everybody going to lunch and they forgot him. And he spent like an hour oh, no. in the RTD2 costume <laughs> over the lunch. Oh, under no. the desert, he's sweating his head off, you know? Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, Debbie, Debbie's uh, brother actually is a little person, and he was in Oz the Great and uh, Powerful. Uh, by the way, by the way, working for one of the greatest Detroit filmmakers and one of the nicest uh, Detroit yeah, filmmakers. Yeah, that was not here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, was one yeah. of the movies. By the way, you're, you're, so your brother. Your brother must have worked a ton of days because all my yeah. friends who've done Raimi movies yeah. moved back home to stay with their mothers and be hired as local hires. All the local hires, where did they shoot that, by the way? Did they shoot oh, that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. at, the, at the old GM plant in Pontiac. Wow. Yeah, they had it as a wow. school, you know, Michigan for a little while, had some film credit stuff going for taxes. And then they switched that and then they stopped making movies here. So some questions on some old sci-fi. I like the old sci-fi. I'm old school. What about me, brother? I'm here. <laughs> right. I had a question. Um, now, one of the things that I've seen, uh, they keep remaking uh, movies that were already good. And this whole sequel fever and remake fever kind of leaves a lot of, to me, leaves a lot of great uh, science fiction stories untold on the screen. Now, if you were a producer with all the budget and power in the world, which would you make? Would you remake something, uh, maybe a classic movie that could have been better, or would you work on an exciting new story that you think would uh, would fire a new a new fandom? First of all, if you guys walk into a meeting and say we've got an old remake right here and we've got a brand new thing and never been tried before, ten out of ten they're going to go with the remake because there's a there's an established audience. <laughs> that's why you're going to keep getting Spider-Man movies. That's why you're going to keep getting. It's easier to take a tried and true formula with a name value character than to try something new, because nine times out of ten, you're not going to have uh, you're not going to have Matrix. You're going to have Johnny Mnemonic. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Got a personal question. Do you have any cool sci-fi collections or or a hobby? If so, what do you collect? I, I have a comic collection. I haven't bought anything new in a while. You know what I mean? I mean, but I, I wrote for Wizard and everything else. So how many comics? I kind of, yeah, I did a two pound book on the Hulk. How could I not be a Marvel uh, reader and not get through that book? Right. I wrote for Marvel too. You know, cool. So your companion books look amazing. You have a uh, Hulk, Jaws on the Buck Roger companion books. Um, question, do you plan on writing any more companion books? If so, which ones? You know what? I can't tell you the show. I'll tell you the name of the show off the air, but there's a cult series. I'm about 90% done with the book. Glad to hear you're working on more books because uh, Thank you. Those, those, are, those look amazing. I was uh, just glancing through them and I, I recommend them highly to especially people who are fans of those shows. I grew up with uh, with all of those shows, of course. Uh, so, all right, now it's time we do a little bit with our uh, 
with our guests. We have a little uh, quiz time. And so we uh, chose for you a 60s sci-fi movie quiz. Wow. Okay. Uh, I accept your challenge, sir. All right. So what we do is we give you a uh, we, we, we'll test. There is some uh, con there's some uh, surprises as well as some consequences. Bless you. Whoever sneezed, by the way. <laughs> so if you get through right in the quiz, we give you one of our uh, I gave to the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund coffee. <laughs> okay? If you get them all right, we'll give you one a copy of my uh, Custodians of the Cosmos novel, which is the story of those who boldly go to clean up after those that boldly just went. But um, bum <laughs> and uh, oh, I'll go ahead and that for you. Uh, and then if you don't get at least three right, we're going to take your face and put it on a, a meme in our Facebook group. Okay. Uh, I accept your challenge, sir. You accept the challenge. All right, I'll start out with the first question. Uh, Excuse me. You know, I think we made these too easy now that I've met you. I know what a, a oh, sci-fi buff. <laughs> sci-fi buff, yeah. But that's all right. It's fun still. All right, the first question is, this is a 1966 two-time Academy Award winning movie. And it's multiple guests. So, so don't give me the answer till, till I give you the choices. Uh, the miniaturized medical team only has six minutes left performing. Oh, please. Fantastic voyage. <laughs> from inside the body. My, my college it... mentor. Hold on, you. My college mentor. One of my college mentors was a guy named Jerome Bixby who lived by my college. Jerome Bixby actually did the story for Fantastic awesome. Voyage. So is it one, seconds, two, the living brain, or three, Fantastic Voyage? Can you guess? I'm going to have to go with C on this one. Do you there we go. <laughs> okay, let's try another question. I was Tim? Like, Are these too hard? So All right, so... Which sequel to the 1958's The Fly came first, Curse of the Fly or Return of the Fly? Oh, wow. That is a good one. Um, that's a tough. I think Return of the Fly was first because that's the Curse of the Fly is the horrible one where they have the guy in the costume running up and down hills. And that smacked up the end of the franchise to me. They yeah. never went with Center of the Fly, which would have been the best title, you know? Yeah, so you are correct. Return of the Fly was released in 1959, six years before Curse of the Fly in 1965. Right. Yeah, yeah of, by the time they did Curse of the Fly, they were just running on films, you know? <laughs> yeah. They were desperate. All right, you got two right. Let's go for the three. So who wins, yes. who wins the climactic battle in 1962's King Kong versus Godzilla? Oh, ah, actually, as a Godzilla fan, this has always troubled me. King Kong wins. <laughs> was it? The rumor was, I, the rumor was the Japanese ending had a different ending where Godzilla won. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I wound up in a conversation with uh, uh, my brother Steve and Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. We we all met at a midnight showing. Uh, we all met, my brothers and I went to a midnight showing at his theater of War of the Gargantuas. Right. Special edition where Tarantino made Tarantino made a special edition of of the movie. Uh, uh, Tarantino made a special edition of Godzilla uh, of War of the Gargantuas, where he combined the TV version with the movie version because the TV version had extra footage. And even uh -huh. he said he was, one of the things that disappointed him is when he was going around the world for one of his movies, he found out the the Godzilla winning ending did not exist, and he was really bothered by that. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> 
All right, so, so let's let's. What was it? Godzilla that won? King Kong that won? No, Godzilla gets his butt kicked. Who who produced, directed, and co-wrote and starred in the 1963 original version of the Nutty Professor, a parody of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde? Was it Jerry? Jerry Lewis, of course. And then he was doing He was doing Green Martin. You know, Lewis, of course. <laughs> All right, so the next question. All right, an electrical accident does what to Dexter, played by a young Kurt Russell in 1969's The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. Does I saw that in re-release with my family at the Van Dyke Drive-In in, in, in Van Dyke. It allows him to absorb all of the knowledge. It allows him to absorb all the knowledge because, by the way, here's the, the trippiest part. Having seen all those movies on re-release in Michigan, the drive-in, as a kid, I was Van Dyke and the Troy. I now live five minutes from Dexter Riley's college. Dexter Riley's college oh, is wow. where they shot okay. the strongest man in the world, the computer that wore tennis shoes, the shaggy dog, shaggy DA, all of them, because Walt Disney's daughter went to the Claremont <laughs> Colleges, and he said to his people, this would be perfect for shooting at, and I could visit my daughter at the same time. So uh, they were, those were all shot literally five minutes from my home in Claremont. That's great. Nice. Well, I would say that you are a, a strong five for five there, sir. Well done. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I'll send you my book. You can enjoy uh, Custodians of the Cosmos. Uh, which I look nice. forward to reading it, sir. But only if you autograph it. You got to autograph it. Of course. Yep, it'll be autographed. Great. Well, thanks. I want Custodians yeah. of the Cosmos autographed. And uh, I will say, if you give me your private info, I will send you uh, a copy of one, of one of my Star Wars articles. I'll send you Gary Kurtz, uncut, okay? Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks. All right, Pat. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, where can people go to find out more about your books and your other career work? Well, my IMDb is up. You'll see me trying to eat Danny Trejo as a monster in a cave in Car uh, what is it? The, the Prey, the Prey of Carnoctus. <laughs> Coming <laughs> to apparently a cable system near you. Please subscribe. Please check out Pat's work and always feel free to contact us where it all began on our funny on our Facebook group, Funny Science Fiction. And remember, if you're not happy with the show's content today, we offer a money back guarantee. Just let Ouch. us know. <laughs> and for every complaint that we have me. So for every complaint we receive, we will uh, subject the offending party to 15 minutes inside our homemade Sarlacc pit. <laughs> now our ending quote today comes from ray bradbury i've never listened to anyone who criticized my taste in space travel sideshows or gorillas when this occurs i pack up my dinosaurs and leave the room thanks pat well, thanks pat you've been by the way my very first interview in high school was ray bradbury that's awesome that's cool. there you go even better <laughs> bye everyone thanks for watching us today have a great day now, by the way, it would be illogical if we failed to mention our charity, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, because as we all know, in episode 55, just 11 minutes and 19 seconds into the show, red-shirted Starship crew members will most likely not survive the good versus evil philosophical interactions with Yarnick after accidentally landing on his planet Excalibur. But thanks to the Red Shirt... Wow, a Yarnick reference! Yeah, <laughs> but thanks to the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund and uh, Red Shirt Families won't be left destitute because we have the, the uh, orphans and the widows taken care of by our <laughs> fictional charity, the Red Shirt. <laughs>
Please remember our fictional charity, Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, is connected to a very real charity, and your purchase of Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund merchandise allows us to donate 100% of the profits of sold merchandise to the awesome folks over at Wish Upon a Team. They help kids have a more comfortable stay in hospitals when their stay becomes extended. Let's not forget to help our neighbors in this time of need. Copyright 2020 by Drake and Allen. Original music by Jordan Michaels. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned in this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation of or by funny science fiction or its sponsors. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at drakenallen at drakenallen.com.